0: our power uh, it makes no, it makes to halt and reverse
1: climate change. We are the first nation to go underwater if we don't stop fossil fuel.
2: We are a generation of scared people, drill, drill. but very ambitious, very united, very persistent and very good at action. When we don't act, people who look like me die. Welcome to the fifth episode of Planet B Everything Must Change, a podcast that explores the key pillars of a globally just Green New Deal. I'm your host, Dahlia Gabriel. And in this episode, we'll be looking at migration, a topic that has filled endless newspaper columns and media segments over the years, becoming a controversial and often misunderstood issue in the story of climate breakdown. From being forced to evacuate in the wake of an extreme weather event, to being slowly driven out by environmental decay, climate breakdown has become a driving factor in mass displacement around the world. Over the next hour, we'll be hearing from a truly star-studded lineup of guests who will talk us through the politics of migration in an era of climate crisis. Together, we will break through the conceptual borders of existing Green New Deals and think about what it really means to go beyond the limitations of national politics. We'll hear about what climate displacement actually looks like on the ground and consider how these stories are currently being weaponized by the far right. We'll examine some of the solutions that are already on the table And ask how our Global Green New Deal can truly ensure that people not only have a right to move with dignity, but a right to meaningfully remain where they live. As always, a quick reminder from me to check out the book on which we have based this podcast series. It's called Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, and you can order your copy for free at www.global-gnd.com. Experts
0: believe millions of people will be displaced by climate change over the next half century. The Bangladesh government
3: estimates that nearly 6 million people are displaced each year due to river erosions. Most climate migrants were fishermen or farmers. They've seen their homes,
2: livelihoods, even their land disappear. Over 60 unaccompanied migrant children being held at the San Diego Convention Center have tested positive
0: for
4: COVID-19. In Central America, we're seeing how these storms can lead to risky decisions.
0: So Juan, he uh, lives in a place called Marte. It's in uh, what is known as a dry corridor. A swath of land that extends through much of Central America in places like Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, um, where people are seeing more arid conditions, more the seasons are scrambling more. the rain has become less reliable. And in Juan's case uh, in his community, that's that's what happened.
2: In perspectives on a global green New deal, journalist Todd Miller based in Tucson, Arizona, wrote about the story of 16-year-old Juan de León Gutierrez. Juan was forced out of his hometown of Tizamarte, Guatemala by droughts and made the treacherous journey across the border into the US in April 2019.
0: There were two places where where you could see the impacts of this. One was in the family's Milpa, which is their small, like a plot where they grow corn and beans. And the, there was't enough rain uh, to irrigate the crops. and um, so the crops were wilting. And then the second thing was that Juan was working at a coffee plantation and getting a meager three dollars a day for that work. But the droughts were affecting the the coffee production there as well. So he wasn't even getting, he wasn't even able to make any money doing that. It got to a point where, there was a crisis in the family. There was a crisis in the community. And several other people and other families had gone north. Uh, Juan's brother had gone north as well. So he told his mother that um, I'm going go to go to the United States um, and I'm going to try to send money back. And so that's what he, he attempted to do. And he ended up going from Guatemala to the United States for where, from where he lived is was, was about 1,500 miles. And, uh, and there's borders with Mexico that you have to cross, which are pretty fortified these days. And then the border with the United States, which is intentionally designed. So people have to go through treacherous conditions to get into the United States. And that's exactly what happened with him. He ended up walking in a desert area, kind of near El Paso in the state of New Mexico, actually. And, um, Then he was apprehended by the U.S. Border Patrol, and soon after his arrest, he uh, fell sick, and then he died in U.S. Border Patrol custody. So that's basically his story. It shows shows a climate event, a really intense one, especially from the droughts of 2018, impacting a displacement, and then having to face uh, a border apparatus.
2: Juan was one of many millions who attempt to cross from Mexico to the south of the United States every year. The militarized, securitized border that is home to Trump's famous wall is the most frequently crossed international border in the world. In cases like Juan's, climate breakdown is a fundamental driver of displacement. The area known as the Dry Corridor has left 1.4 million people at risk of hunger due to a combination of drought and torrential rain and floods. According to the World Food Programme, more than 25% of residents cannot afford basic food supplies, and 30% of those who migrate from the region cite weather as the main cause. As the tragic story of Juan and his family makes clear, climate breakdown can drive displacement in many ways. Whether it's the destruction of homes and subsistence livelihoods, or the increasing scarcity of previously dependable forms of waged work. In a world where poverty and vulnerability are increasingly driven by climate crisis, migration has become one of the most tangible manifestations of how ecological and societal breakdown are intersecting. Evidence shows that over 70% of the 33 million newly displaced people in 2019 were forced to move due to climate-related triggers.
1: Okay, Um, my name is Tetet Lauron, and I work as an advisor for uh, Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and I am currently based in Manila, the Philippines. So I'm very happy to be one of the contributors to... um, The Green New Deal uh, booklet with the article titled Climate Migration is a Feminist Issue.
2: Alongside Todd's piece, another important contribution to Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal was that of Tetet Lauron. Tetet wrote about the gender politics of climate-related migration and how people's ability to both move and remain is bound up in their existing experiences and material realities. As we touched on briefly with the example of the Virgin Island storms in episode three of this series, what turns a sudden weather event into a crisis is the social and economic context within which it takes place. Having or not having necessary infrastructures available can turn a manageable event into a catastrophe that people then have to flee. In Perspectives, Tete wrote about how gender is a major factor in this dynamic, shaping who is made vulnerable to the worst successes of climate breakdown.
1: Of course, everyone knows that climate change affects everyone, but there is also much evidence that women in all their diversity are disproportionately negatively affected. Um, the starting point, I, I guess, is that women, uh, Women are already poor, marginalized, and excluded even before a disaster strikes. You no, know, We have a lot of uh, data around us that say women make up 6 out of the 10 poorest people worldwide. Women own just 2% of the world's land resources. Women earn less than men for work of equal value. And women bear the brunt of unpaid care work. So, Although advances have been made on gender equality, women empowerment initiatives, many inequalities remain because of ingrained policies, social norms, which make women particularly vulnerable to climate change. So what I'm trying to say is that um, despite all of these um, hula-baloo around uh, gender equality, women's rights, systems of oppression and exploitation are still very much in place. More women than men lose their lives, not due to physical differences, but because of social, economic, and cultural constructs that limits women's ability to protect themselves, especially when disasters strike.
2: As we have seen throughout this series, black and brown women in particular are excluded from the very decision-making processes that have led to climate breakdown, despite bearing the brunt of its impacts. As men and boys like Juan are increasingly pushed to migrate in order to find work, those women that remain behind, as Kavita Naidu pointed out in episode one, are increasingly taking on the bulk of subsistence labour at home. Women also tend to take on most of the care responsibilities, making it harder for them to leave home. And if they do leave... The process of migrating is fraught with risks of gender-based violence, such as trafficking or sexual assault, especially for those who end up in informal settlements or displacement camps.
1: If they are lucky enough to escape from disasters, they're already uh, facing a lot of um risks uh, during transit, you know, when fleeing from disasters, and also upon arrival in temporary shelters or evacuation sites. Um, their, their rights to um, life, water, food, housing, health, education, these are really um, compromised no? uh, even more during uh, moments when they face forcible displacement. For instance, um, if they're lucky enough to get into an evacuation center, many women face a lot of um health challenges. You know, specific to them being women. For instance, are there uh, gender sensitive infrastructure, you know, um like toilets for instance? Would there be provision of sanitary pads or tampons? You know, things like that. Um, we might feel that um. In disasters, the most urgent would be food no? and um, shelter. But there are specific uh, needs that women have that are often overlooked in uh, situations of um, um, forcible displacement.
2: From pervasive transphobic violence to lack of reproductive health care, women in all their diversity are made vulnerable in these spaces of displacement whether they are moving within a country or pushed across national borders, there are limited protections currently in place for those forced to move by the compounding effects of climate breakdown. Instead, we tend to wait for a catastrophe to take place and then fall back into reactive disaster relief measures. Think of Hurricane Katrina or the recent earthquake in Haiti, where those displaced from their homes are being left to fend for themselves in informal settlements because of the absence of a well-resourced and well-planned response. Whether it's Juan's case at the southern border of the United States or the forcible displacement of women described by TETET, our existing system is entirely reactive. At the border or within nation-states, We don't have comprehensive infrastructures in place to deal with displacement, let alone the imminent scale of climate migration. In the absence of state or international mechanisms, it is local movements that more often than not step in to plug the gaps.
1: Well, you know that the Philippines is one of the more vibrant social movements. No? We have a very rich history and tradition. We've fought and uh, ousted dictators, uh, corrupt officials. Filipinos invented the word people power no? when it was not yet in vogue. So we're proud of that tradition. Uh, so we have that strong movement that already goes you know, across constituencies. So we're very organized, Um, name it, um, workers, farmers, indigenous women, um, youth, uh, peasants, um, even informal workers, you know, are already being organized and mobilizing and trying to reclaim that power and the right to imagine that future. What is probably unique in the Philippine context is that there is also a people's war that is raging, in the countryside no um that's why when when people talk about achieving profound changes through legislation uh, i could not really connect with it because our reality is uh, there is a people's war raging uh, in our countryside um we there is a people's liberation army that is also pushing forward those alternatives and connecting it with climate justice. It's the people's army that the ordinary farmers, displaced people, uh, go to in order to protect them from destructive um, extractivist projects like you know mining corporations, uh, mega dam projects. It's not the establishment, military, and police that are protecting the people from all of these harmful projects, it's actually uh, the People's Liberation Army that are defending people's rights, people's livelihoods, and in this case, you know, the rights of the environment against foreign corporations who want to continue to plunder our resources.
2: Given the lack of a comprehensive, sustainable, and care-based response to displacement, it's movements like these in the Philippines that have stepped up in countries around the world. But obviously, there isn't a people's army everywhere. And where vulnerable migrants are left to the aid of charity or insufficient legal frameworks, Violent and dystopian visions of what we should do with this crisis have been allowed to flourish.
0: We have to start by building a wall, a big, beautiful, powerful wall. I would temporarily halt Muslim immigration to this country until we get a grip of the problem. If you were running your own immigration policy,
3: do you think it'd be a good idea to get a lot of people to come who didn't speak English?
1: The America that we know and love doesn't exist anymore. Massive demographic changes have been foisted upon the American people.
0: We have a moral obligation to admit the world's poor, they tell us, even if it makes our own country poorer and dirtier and more divided.
2: Before he murdered 23 people in 2019, the El Paso shooter wrote in his manifesto that we, quote, need to get rid of enough people, unquote, in order to live a more sustainable life and prevent environmental destruction creating a burden on future generations. It was because of this that he decided to violently confront, in his words, the Hispanic invasion of Texas. His inspiration, he said, was another racist mass shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, which claimed 51 lives a few months before. That perpetrator targeted two mosques, claiming immigration to be environmental warfare and describing himself as an eco-fascist. Eco-fascism is an ideology with a long history – It accepts the existence of ecological breakdown, but the solutions it provides are nothing short of genocidal. It promotes the idea that as resources become scarcer, some people should simply be allowed to die. People deemed to be a burden on society should be sacrificed to allow the more valuable to live. Here, Physical and conceptual borders around those who deserve to be protected need to be drawn and fortified.
4: Hi, I'm Harsha Walia. I'm based in Vancouver, unceded Coast Salish territories, lands of the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish nations. Um, and I am the author of Border and Rule.
2: Harsha is one of North America's foremost thinkers and organizers on migrants' rights. We asked her to tell us more about the ideology of ecofascism and about how elements of the far right have moved away from climate denial and towards racist bordering as a solution to climate breakdown.
4: We're seeing the rise of ecofascism, where really border controls are becoming central to the ecofascist narrative. And it's kind of shifted from outward climate denial. To now actually saying, you know, borders are our greatest weapon in the fight against climate change. Uh, And, you know, imagery where the the border um, becomes kind of a protector against climate change and these really kind of social Darwinian, lifeboat, Malthusian kind of responses, which, you know, again, are about gated communities, secured borders, you know, Elon Musk shooting himself out to space, all of this kind of stuff. And I think borders become central to that in so many ways. One is it becomes central to right-wing nationalism. And again, who gets protected, who doesn't, who belongs, who doesn't, you know, who gets to be on this Malthusian lifeboat uh, and really reinforces the kind of scarcity logic of white entitlement um, and also the, the dominant, right? The dominance of who gets to live, who has the right to life and who doesn't. So it, it really exacerbates racist nationalisms in that way about who belongs, who doesn't. And also, of course, the border becomes a key tool of securing the border. Um, and we see that, you know, in Europe, in Australia, in the United States, in Canada, in India, um, you know, all of these all of these uh, geographies, all of these countries, all of these um, economic blocks have really made clear that one of their priorities for defense and for border militarization is to secure their borders against climate-induced migration, right? So where the climate you know, is no longer something to tackle because our life depends on it, but because it's become the latest iteration of the migration crisis, right? And so I think in that sense, thinking about the border, as you said, as, you know, central to capitalism, to imperialism, to racist nationalism, in an era of escalating climate change, the border becomes a way to resolve
2: all of these. This all sounds pretty dystopian and extreme. But it's not as fringe as you might think. The logic that some people must be protected from the effects of climate breakdown, and others cannot be, has become, in many ways, the default position that many of the most powerful nation-states are falling back on.
0: When the Roman Empire fell, uh, it was largely as a result
1: of uncontrolled immigration. You've got a swarm of people coming across
0: the Mediterranean, seeking a better life.
2: I want to be clear. Do not come. Do not come.
3: I have no doubt that the fundamental source of all our problems, particularly our environmental problems, is population growth.
2: Responding to mass displacement by just letting people die is the establishment status quo. Think about the ongoing crisis in the Mediterranean, where more than 22,000 people have died since 2000, trying to flee to relative safety within the European Union, many of whom have died by drowning at sea. This death toll is a direct result of EU policy which focuses on trying to discourage people from attempting to migrate rather than making migration safer. In the absence of adequate and accessible paths to citizenship, people fleeing war, persecution and economic and environmental degradation are forced to make their journey using riskier and often deadly methods. This strategy does not reduce the number of people trying to migrate. It merely increases the number of lives lost in the process. This is all based in a politics of austerity. Despite being responsible for many of the economic, political and environmental drivers of displacement, powerful states in the global north claim to not have enough resources to accommodate and care for those forced to flee.
4: In my view, uh, fascism and liberalism, though they're not the same, they feed off of each other, right? And the nation-state kind of neoliberal responses, which can often be ones of austerity, if you will, um, feed eco-fascism and feed fascism in general because the kind of state liberal austerity responses are very much about scarcity, are very much about who is entitled to what, Um, And lead us to believe that there are no other solutions, right? Of course, Thatcher very famously with her Tina refrain would lead us to believe that there is no solution, or in fact, that capitalism is the savior to capitalism, right? With more techno solutionism. Um, And that feeds eco-fascism, of course. Um, And I think in Europe, this is um, most stark where we see fascism generally as, you know, both a uh, response to capitalism and a response to the status quo in as much as it is fascism um, as a response to uh, anti-migrant xenophobia, right? And so I think they work together because um, at the core of austerity responses is anti-migrant xenophobia, because the idea of who is entitled to what from the state uh, hinges on the ability to claim some kind of citizenship or status in the state. And migrants are almost always the first to be excluded, not exclusively, but one of the many who are the first to be excluded from the idea of who belongs within the nation state. And so I think absolutely kind of seemingly centrist liberal responses to climate change very much feed ecofascism. By escalating the politics of austerity, escalating the politics of scarcity, and escalating the politics of entitlement, which ecofascism really uh, feeds off of, and very much in terms of a false solution, right? Again, of capitalism and borders as somehow being the solution to this crisis.
2: Harsha's description of how existing state responses to displacement echo the tenets of ecofascism reminds me of the story of Juan, which Todd told us about at the top of the show. As he was trying to understand how Juan went from a young man trying to help his family survive to dying in U.S. custody, Todd found that this logic of letting some people die was central to the U.S.'s prevailing approach to climate change. Rather than marshalling its vast political and economic resources towards building a more sustainable world, Todd told us that it has been the policy of successive U.S. administrations to militarise its borders in an attempt to insulate itself from the human fallout of climate chaos. As far as the United States is concerned, its border policy is its climate policy.
0: There's all these documents that the Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, they have an entire climate adaptation plan. And um, their whole climate adaptation plan goes with the five point mission of the Department of Homeland Security, which is basically border enforcement, immigration enforcement, um, cyber security, counterterrorism and critical infrastructure. Those are the five things they look at this. There's the nothing else. So when they start analyzing the world and you know sh- seeing that climate catastrophes are causing and are going to cause more displacement, you start reading through their the solutions they have and you'll find answers like, we need to prepare our borders for mass migrations. When you look at the planning, oh, we're going to build up more of our border apparatus. We're going to with Donald Trump, right? We're going to build more of a wall or a Joe Biden. We're going to, we're going to put more uh, surveillance equipment. We're going to increase our detention centers. We're going to, you know, so it's always this answer of stopping people and regardless of even knowing why people are being displaced, the same sort of, of solution. And, and, and there's assessments that look into the future, like the Pentagon, for example, had a 2003, um, assessment, and this was the assessment was a worst case climate scenario, and they said the United States and Australia will have to build up defensive fortresses, quote unquote, to stop. And in particular, the United States, they said, because they'll have to stop unwanted. This is quote a quote direct quote unwanted starving immigrants, quote coming from Central America and the Caribbean, and the Caribbean, of course. And they put it in parentheses an especially severe problem. Because of course the storm surges and the and the sea level rise. And so you see you see the border policy and climate policy converging, coming together. It's like, oh, there's gonna be all this displacement. Oh, fine, we'll just stop them with our quote unquote defensive fortresses. And that's precisely precisely when you look at the border, what has been done. And and I would say the border is a militarized border. So the idea of militarism also converges there too.
2: In this context. Juan's death is not a one-off tragedy. Rather, it's the consequence of the disproportionate impacts of climate breakdown on black and brown people, along with infrastructural inequalities between the global north and south, and decades of toxic migration policy. Juan is one of many people who have and will continue to find themselves on the wrong end of this rigged equation. What's more, this approach is not limited to states like the U.S. In fact, this logic is being exported and normalized around the world. My
0: journalism always is looking through the lens of U.S. policy. And I actually wrote a book on um, the externalization of the U.S. border. So I traveled from the Philippines to Kenya to Jordan to Israel-Palestine to uh you know central american countries and dominican republic and um it's amazing like each place is just they're vastly different places right there's they're so different in so many ways but then these same sort of things are manifesting in each place like the wall is going up in some sort of form like in the Dominican uh Haitian border Dominicans are already discriminated against in US policy but The United States has been giving uh, money and uh, giving training to the Dominican Republic uh, to build up its border with Haiti. They they even have a border patrol now that was trained by the United States. And so now, like, there was just an earthquake in Haiti a week ago, right? And uh, storm surges and the hurricanes that have hit Haiti. And you have the Dominican Republic that is doing almost exactly the same thing as the you know the united states is doing on on its border and that and you can follow that like the even the kenyan somali border which it seems so far from the united states following that money there oh lo and behold a lot of us money has gone into the building up of this border the united states has trained kenyan's to enforce that border and one of the things that's going on in somalia of course is in turn these tremendous droughts like and which is causing Tremendous amount of displacement. So you have all these very common issues and then this these apparatus of divisions that, that are stopping people.
2: In the face of escalating humanitarian crises and increasing awareness of the risks faced by displaced people, many organizations, including departments within the UN, have proposed creating a legally protected category of climate refugee. Others have suggested developing a climate passport, which would enable those driven from their homes by ecological breakdown to migrate and settle with dignity. For many, this is a more humane and just way of dealing with the unavoidable issue of climate-linked displacement. It offers a counter-narrative to the current militarised approach of nation-states, arguing that those most responsible for climate change should provide a safe home for those whose lives are upended because of it. While climate
0: refugees does not exist under international law, it does capture the sense of urgency and vulnerability of populations and the need to act on behalf of those people who have been forced to flee. We have an an accountability, a responsibility to be doing more to enhance preparedness, protection, support, adaptation. Not only for those people who are already displaced, but those people who are going to be made increasingly vulnerable in the future. If we know uh, the impact of climate change is real, and if we know that there's going to be tens of millions of people made more vulnerable, then we need to be stepping up our game.
2: Many of these proposals are in their early stages, so there isn't yet a collectively agreed upon or comprehensive definition of who would be classified as a climate refugee. In the most conservative imaginations, a climate refugee is exclusively someone whose home has been either destroyed or eliminated by an extreme weather event. A commonly drawn upon example is that of the Tuvaluan people, who populate a small, low-lying Polynesian country between Hawaii and Australia. Two of Tuvalu's nine islands are already on the verge of totally submerging into the sea, and the remaining seven are being slowly shrunk by rising sea levels. Given the imminent impossibility of staying where they are, Tuvaluans fit into the classic definition of refugee as opposed to migrant, granting them, in theory, more legal protections. We spoke to Assad Raymond, Executive Director at War and Want, an anti-poverty charity based in London. Assad has worked around issues of climate displacement and climate justice for many years. And we asked him about the potential limitations of the climate refugee label.
3: One of the problems, of course, is that often people think about climate displacement as being people crossing international borders yeah. as well. And we know that it's as true as for civil and political and issues around war and conflict that the overwhelming majority of people don't cross international borders. If they do cross international borders, it's usually to a neighboring country. But most people tend to be internally displaced. That's why internal displacement is such a huge issue for many, many countries in in the global south. Now, there are some people who are intent on trying to talk about this in a very, very narrow way. So for them, the issue about climate migration is simply or climate refugees, as they would like to call it, is talking about um, a very, very narrow subset of people, largely based on small islands, where it's sea level rise that is destroying people's homes, where people are basically lack the ability to be able to have any mobility within their own country. And people want to talk about them as being, you know, when we talk about climate-induced migration, it's those people, because there is no possibility of their return. Rather than trying to talk about climate-induced migration in a more holistic way, which talks about recognising that the decisions that people make to move are as much linked to people's economic capacity as they are to the extreme weather. So we can see, for example, through many studies that the patterns of, of displacement um, are not one sudden onset extreme weather event and you see a mass movement of people. Of course, there are some examples of that, You know, Hurricane Katrina, for example, in New Orleans, A million people move but even that story is as much about that people were living in poor communities with lack of resources and that forced their displacement um but for people in the global south without the ability of being in one of the richest countries in the world it often means that people first move actually not very very far from where the impacts or where they were originally living because they move to family networks Mm. or to their own social networks which tends to be small towns, villages, other family people, very, very close by. And then people make decisions, even in that vulnerability, to do other things, like they will sell their livestock, they will use their savings, they will take other measures before the idea of actually moving. Um, And even then in terms of the movement, often for families, it's more a question of one person moves on behalf of the whole family. That one person would go to see work in the city, Try and send remittances back to give the family economic security because families don't and communities don't want to be displaced from where they are and from where they live. And so, displacement in its broader sense, this idea of a whole bunch of people moving, is actually there's lots of different displacements all taking place.
2: As Assad argues, defining what a climate refugee is is deeply political especially when it comes to dealing with the vast majority of those who are displaced for complex and overlapping reasons. Where climate breakdown is not necessarily the sole or most obvious driver of movement, but is an accelerator or trigger for the kinds of political and economic stability that push people to leave. In other words, whoever gets to define what a climate refugee is has all the power.
3: There are parts of our movement that have used the word climate refugee because they think it's convenient, you know, maybe it'll elicit a bit more sympathy from citizens of the global north if they talk about them as being refugees. Um, Or we don't want to talk about them as migrants because, you know, the connotation of migrant is toxic in the global north. But for people in the global south, so we're not refugees. You know, we're not fleeing persecution. We don't fit under the list legal definition of what a refugee is. Like in fact, we're climate migrants or we're climate-induced migrants or we're forcibly displaced people. The term matters because partly it matters as to what kind of international support will be available to people. So the narrower you define the issue about refugees, climate refugees, the more the Global North says, great, because their biggest fear is that they will be held responsible and so in all climate Mm. discourse around all of these issues the biggest thing from the global north countries is there is no legal obligation for us we don't want to be legal responsible we don't want another convention like the refugee convention Mm. which puts a legal onus on us to provide a semblance of safety and even as we know they've spent decades trying to roll back those obligations so there's an issue about the legal definition um you know there's very telling, for example, Mexican people crossing the border from Mexico to the United States, are they an economic migrant because they live in poverty or are they a climate migrant because the drought has forced them from their land and plunged them into poverty and then forced them to move? And so the question about uh, these these two terms becomes a really important political one um and so i think for us as progressives the question about how we make sure that the economic as well as the environmental are connected in how we define what is ultimately forced climate migration right because people are not moving because of choice they're being forced and that force isn't also Mm -hmm. simply about some natural act of god right there is a, a dynamic as to who is forcing them who is therefore culpable and who is therefore legally responsible for them.
2: Given the already toxic conversations surrounding migration, which divides migrants into good and bad, authentic and bogus, innocent refugees and burdensome economic migrants, this desire to categorize, even in an attempt to protect the most vulnerable displaced people, could potentially set a worrying precedent. Under this rubric, it's not clear that someone like Juan would have been protected by the category of climate refugee. If used, as Assad described, as a way of limiting the responsibility of powerful nations for the effects of climate breakdown, Juan and many others like him would still find themselves unprotected, scapegoated and in many cases left to die. What's more, as Assad explained, the majority of people displaced by the effects of climate breakdown never actually cross a border. They are internally displaced, yet face similar issues of dispossession and precarity. They are pushed to the margins economically and often end up struggling to survive in informal settlements. Most of this internal displacement happens in Global South countries who, as we've learned, have been denied the resources they need to cope with these upheavals. Despite doing far more to cause climate change, states in the Global North have not provided the level of climate financing needed to resource infrastructures of resilience and adaptation in countries on the front line. Instead they invest in violent borders to keep the problem off their shores. Migration policy in a global Green New Deal therefore has to start before the border. It has to include a reparative dimension, a way of ensuring that people have the resources to adapt in the way they choose. The removal of loan conditions that require austerity, the cancellation of debt and the provision of substantive climate financing could fund universal global access to social protection measures, making the choice to leave or stay a genuine one. Clearly, the question has to be so much more than how many climate refugees do we let in, but rather how do we work together to make the world hospitable for all? enshrining a global right to remain, as well as a right to move with dignity.
3: So first of all, the fact that it's global and therefore it doesn't retreat behind the nation state is a really, really critical uh, dimension. Uh, Secondly, in terms of a global Green New Deal, when it looks at, for example, about climate-induced migration or displacement, it doesn't simply look at in terms of legal protection. It looks at both the, the drivers and then the solutions and so and it looks at tackling that nexus between economic uh social and climate um and so it's demands whether um, energy and food as public goods living wages social protection universal public services are not simply geared because they are they're a good thing to have of course they're a good thing to have they're the solution to climate inequality but they're also the very survival mechanism for those who are being most impacted and displaced. So that centering of that is, uh, I suppose, one one part. The second part of about the Global Green New Deal is uh, being very, very explicit about centering and defending migrant rights and being very explicit that the Global Green New Deal is anti-racist, right? And it is anti-colonial. It is telling that story that this, this unequal and unjust world that we exist in was not created by accident. It's not god's will it was a deliberately constructed economic and political structure blah 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 and to undo it you have to undo not just what's happening today but unroot all these other systems that have existed and that leads you to the third element in terms of the global green new deal which is where does the resources come to deliver the demands and the needs Mm. and that's why the global green new deal has to really center the idea of reparative justice, of reparations, of financial transfers and technology transfers from the global north to the global south. Often people talk, I think in this moment, about a circular economy. I think we, talk, we want to talk about a circular society where everybody has equitable access to what is needed to live with dignity. and not We're not just talking about material use, circling through the economy we're talking about our well-being and i think that's what the global green new deal Mm. can really do it can shift this conversation Mm. in a really profound way but also have very very concrete demands that really speak to people's lived realities
2: Investing in infrastructures of care and resilience will be essential to ensuring that nobody is forced to move due to the cascading effects of ecological breakdown. However, the reality is that our climate is already changing and fast. People around the world are already fleeing across borders to escape crises they did not create. So what do we owe to those whose communities and homes have already been made unlivable? And what do we owe to those who will need to move in the future? What would a just and fair border policy look like in a global Green New Deal? In order to answer that, we must first take a couple of steps back and ask ourselves a larger question. What actually is a border? Why do they exist? And who do they benefit? Harsha Walia, who you heard from earlier in the show, published a book this year called Border and Rule, which delves deep into this exact topic. In it, she charts the short history of the modern border and its role in creating and maintaining our current capitalist system. By segmenting the world into unequal nation-states and therefore creating unequal people, Walia argues that borders are essential to controlling the movement of workers and resources. This control lies at the heart of how the rich stay rich and the poor stay working for the rich. We asked her to tell us a bit more about how borders are created and enforced to protect capital rather than people.
4: What I think is crucial in the context of the work of borders today is I think it's inseparable from racial capitalism and imperialism, which is that we know that state borders today literally were created in order to maintain territory for empire, especially in the kind of, you know, 1700s to 1900s, that really was the key function. Um, So to control territory and also to control labor. And I think uh, in terms of your question about the role of borders in a capitalist modernity, I think today it is so foundational that borders essentially work to segment labor, right? Like such a key part of late capitalism and advanced capitalism is the continuing multiplication of labor. And as we know, this happens in many ways across race, gender, sexuality, and more. And then when we add citizenship It becomes, you know, yet another bifurcation of the labor force. Um, And today borders are so central to both imperialism and capitalism by really maintaining the asymmetry um, between the global north and the global south as we know it. Right. Like the global north and global south would really cease to exist as we know it if it weren't for modern nation states and the ways in which the borders maintain the divisions between the north and the south in many ways. Whether that's, you know, the ability to wage war and drone warfare and imperialism and economic apartheid and global vaccine apartheid and to segment workers. Um, Borders are just uh, a central pillar of the ways in which imperialism and capitalism function today to really maintain the segregation that we know in the world today.
2: As we've learned throughout this series, capitalism and colonialism have been central to bringing about the climate crisis we find ourselves in. Given the role borders play in maintaining these extractive systems, the question we are compelled to ask is less how do we make borders more just or who should we allow to cross the border, but rather is it even possible to halt climate breakdown and achieve climate justice in a bordered world? It becomes difficult to imagine how we can do all the things we've said a global Green New Deal needs to do. Things like economic redistribution, debt relief, the open sourcing of green technology, the liberating of nature from extraction and growth, and the reclaiming of infrastructure from the hands of private companies, whilst keeping the very scaffolding of global inequality intact. The instrument with which some lives are designated less worthy than others, and entire countries are denied the resources they need to cope with a crisis they didn't create. Borders are so essential to how we divide people and to how the world is arbitrarily carved into segments and given to corporations and imperial states to plunder. By trying to keep intact the border system segmenting people into citizens and non-citizens, climate refugees and economic migrants, global north and global south, we keep ourselves from being able to take the collective and radical action we so urgently need. We get lost in the details of defining what divides us rather than what unites us.
4: We have to see it in the context of how the fight to tackle climate change is increasingly about not actually people's right to stay and not to you know keep it in the ground, um, but to prevent migration, right? To increasingly limit the category of who can move under what conditions and to create exactly as you said, this kind of picture of who is a pure climate refugee as if though there are no other factors like political and economic reasons, right? Those completely intersect. And it's also to create a kind of sanitized idea of what climate change is, as if though it is not itself a symptom of political and economic factors, right? And systems. And so this increasing move, I think, to remove the climate from our underlying political and economic systems is what's at work here. And I think it is to restrict the category of who can move under what conditions, right? Right. Uh, and so I think an alternative demand really is um, a no border politics, right? That really encapsulates the reality of global imperialism, of global apartheid, of capitalist globalization, of racial capitalism. Um, that is the only solution to the world that we live in. It's not to increasingly segment people into categories of people, um, but to turn the gaze onto the state, to turn the gaze onto the global systems of apartheid that we live under and to demand no borders. And, you know, a no border politics, I want to emphasize, is different than an open border politics, right? An open border politics assumes that the world remains as is and we just open up the border. A no border politics is to see these interrelated systems, right, and to understand that the freedom to stay and the freedom to move are corollaries of each other. It's not just about people being on the move, but it's about dismantling racial capitalism, dismantling imperialism, such that the divisions between the North and the South no longer exist, right? Such that class no longer exists, Um, such that we no longer live in a capitalist system, such that militaries are dismantled and prisons are dismantled. And so I think a no-border politics is more expansive in that it sees these systems as interrelated and doesn't just kind of play to um, really dangerous reformist solutions that continues to uh, differentiate and create
2: categories of people. Of course, it's a controversial claim. In increasingly unstable and confusing times, national identity has become a reassuring anchor for many people. A way of taking a world that seems overwhelming in its scale and connectedness and breaking it down into something that feels easier to comprehend. So how can we speak through the immense attachment so many feel to nationhood? How is this pragmatic, given the urgent, time-sensitive nature of climate breakdown?
4: You know, I'd probably say the same thing to people who think, you know, uh, an anti-capitalism is not pragmatic or an anti-imperialism isn't pragmatic, which is that literally people's lives depend on it, right? So a politics of pragmatism that continues to presume and accept as its foundation that some people have a right to life and others don't is fundamentally immoral. And it's not what any project um, of liberation or any vision of justice is rooted in. It's just fundamentally not. Um, So I think it's, uh, you know, it's not intended to solely be pragmatic. It's intended to be what's needed. Um, And also I'm not convinced that it's not entirely pragmatic, right? Because again, borders do the work, do the work of death and they do the work of segmenting the working class from each other, you know? So for those who believe that it is more pragmatic, if you will, um, to maintain borders, it forces the question of, well, what, how has the border protected you anyway, right? Has it actually stopped your wages from decreasing? Has it changed how you relate to the nation state? Have you been able to access more benefits from the welfare state? No, right? Because that's not how capitalism works. And so, I also think there's a pragmatic question about, well, then how have borders actually been pragmatic um, for, for the working class? They haven't been. They lower the wage floor, right? They pit workers against each other. They allow for outsourcing. They allow for insourcing. And so I think, you know, the only way to actually lift the wage floor is to get rid of the border.
2: A global Green New Deal has to make the case that borders will not save us from climate breakdown. That borders are barriers to taking power back from the corporations and economic elites that have got us into this mess in the first place. There's a reason why big businesses can relocate their investments and labour anywhere in the world. And yet people fleeing crises are unable to cross those same borders when their lives depend on it these lines of division aren't there to effectively and equitably manage shared resources. They are there to consolidate power, to divide and conquer, but on a planetary scale. De-bordering our world begins with creating alternative ways of belonging. By being clear on the uneven responsibilities of different nations, whilst understanding that so long as we are stuck, thinking and acting in our national silos, we will be condemned to continually falling back on false solutions. Taking on the most powerful tool of climate breakdown is not a utopian vision for some distant future. A no-border politics must be part of a global Green New Deal because borders themselves are how capitalism and colonialism continue to survive. Moving away from a bordered world has to be the start, not the end, of imagining life on Planet B. Thank you for listening to Planet B. This series was produced by Freddie Stewart and made possible by the generosity of the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. This episode was written by Dahlia Gabriel and Freddie Stewart. The music and sound was produced by Ben Heidemann. And the podcast artwork was designed by Tamika George and Pietro Garone. Just one final reminder that you can order a free copy of Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, the illustrated book on which the series is based at www.global-gnd.com. You'll find the next documentary episode of Planet B right here on Navara Media at the same time in the same place next week. And stay tuned for extended editions of our guest interviews, which we'll be publishing as bonus content. I've been your host, Dalia Gabriel, and thank you for listening.